This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of distal humerus fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Distal humerus fractures are traumatic injuries that include supracondylar fractures, single-column condyle fractures, bicolumn fractures, and coronal shear fractures. As far as the epidemiology of distal humerus fractures, they account for 0.5 to 7% of all fractures, and they account for 30% of all elbow fractures. As far as the demographics, these injuries are most common in young males and older females. As far as the location, distal intracondylar fractures are the most common fracture pattern. With respect to the pathophysiology, as far as the mechanism, these injuries are typically secondary to low-energy falls in the elderly and high-energy impact in the younger population. As far as the pathoanatomy, keep in mind that the elbow position affects the fracture type. So if the elbow is flexed less than 90 degrees, axial load leads to a transcolumnar fracture, and a direct posterior blow leads to an olecranon fracture with or without distal humerus involvement. In the setting of an elbow flexed greater than 90 degrees, this may lead to intercondylar fracture. In the setting of an elbow flexed greater than 90 degrees, this position may lead to an intercondylar fracture. Associated injuries with distal humerus fractures include elbow dislocation, terrible triad injury, floating elbow, and a Volkmann's contracture which results from a missed forearm compartment syndrome. As far as the prognosis for distal humerus fractures, the majority of patients regain 75% of elbow motion and strength. The goal is to restore elbow range of motion 30 to 130 degrees of flexion. Unsatisfactory outcomes are seen in up to 25% of patients. Treatment of distal humerus fractures are complex due to the low fracture line of one or both columns, metaphyseal fragmentation of one or both columns, articular comminution, and poor bone quality. Now let's talk about some relevant anatomy. We'll specifically talk about the osteology, muscles, ligaments, and nerves. As far as the osteology, remember that the elbow is a hinged joint. The trochlea articulates with a sigmoid notch and allows for flexion and extension. The capitellum articulates with the proximal radius and allows for forearm rotation. As far as muscles to know, the common flexors originate from the medial epicondyle, and the common extensors originate from the lateral epicondyle. Specifically, the common flexors include the pronator teres, flexor carpi radialis, palmaris longus, the FDS, and the FCU. The common extensors include the anconius, ECRL, ECRB, extensor digitorum communis, EDM, and ECU. As far as ligaments, the important ones to know in the setting of distal humerus fractures include the medial collateral ligament and the lateral collateral ligament. With respect to the medial collateral ligament, the anterior bundle originates from the distal medial epicondyle, and the medial collateral ligament inserts on the sublime tubercle. The medial collateral ligament is the primary restraint to valgus stress at the elbow from 30 to 120 degrees. Keep in mind that the medial collateral ligament is tight in pronation. Moving on to the lateral collateral ligament, this originates from the distal lateral epicondyle and inserts on the crista supinatoris. Remember that the lateral collateral ligament is a stabilizer against posterolateral rotational instability. And also remember that the lateral collateral ligament is tight in supination, unlike the medial collateral ligament, which is tight in pronation. Finally, let's talk about some relevant nerves, specifically the ulnar nerve and the radial nerve. The ulnar nerve resides in the cubital tunnel in a subcutaneous position below the medial condyle. The radial nerve resides in the spiral groove 15 centimeters proximal to the distal humeral articular surface. It runs between the brachioradialis and brachialis proximal to the elbow, 
and it divides into the PIN and superficial radial nerve at the level of the radial head. Moving on to the classification of distal humeral fractures, they can be classified as supracondylar fractures, distal single-column fractures, and distal bicolumnar fractures. Distal single-column fractures are subclassified using the Milch classification, which we'll talk about in a moment. With respect to distal single-column fractures, the lateral condyle is more common than the medial. Moving on to distal bicolumnar fractures, this is classified using the Jupiter classification, which we'll also discuss in a moment. Keep in mind that five major articular fragments have been identified, and they are the capitellum slash lateral trochlea, the lateral epicondyle, the posterior lateral epicondyle, the posterior trochlea, and the medial trochlea slash epicondyle. So with respect to distal humeral fractures, the specific classification systems to know include the AO slash OTA classification of distal humeral fractures, the Milch classification of single-column condyle fractures, and the Jupiter classification of two-column distal humerus fractures. With respect to the AO slash OTA classification of distal humerus fractures, there are three types. Type A is extra-articular and specifically a supracondylar fracture, and 80% are extension type or epicondyle fractures. Type B are intra-articular single-column fractures, specifically a partial articular isolated condylar, coronal shear, or epicondylar with articular extension. And type C is also intra-articular, however both columns are fractured and no portion of the joint is contiguous with the shaft. This is otherwise known as a complete articular type fracture. Each of these types can be further divided by the degree and location of fracture comminution. Moving on to the Milch classification of single-column condyle fractures, there are two types. In a Milch type 1, the lateral trochlear ridge is intact, and in a Milch type 2, the fracture goes through the lateral trochlear ridge. Finally, the Jupiter classification of two-column distal humerus fractures has several types. A high T-type, a low T-type, a Y-type, an H-type, a medial lambda type, a lateral lambda type, and a multiplane T-type. A high T-type corresponds to a transverse fracture proximal to or at the upper olecranon fossa. A low T-type corresponds to a transverse fracture just proximal to the trochlea, which is common. A Y-type is an oblique fracture line through both columns with the distal vertical fracture line. In an H-type, the trochlea exists as a free fragment and has a risk of avascular necrosis. In a medial lambda type, the proximal fracture line exists medially. In a lateral lambda type, the proximal fracture line exists laterally. And finally, in a multiplane T-type, this is a T-type injury with additional fracture in the coronal plane. Now let's talk about the presentation of distal humerus fractures. Symptoms include elbow pain and swelling. On physical exam, gross instability is often present, so make sure to avoid range of motion due to risk of neurovascular damage. The neurovascular exam should involve checking the function of the radial, ulnar, and median nerves, and also checking the distal pulses, as the brachial artery may be injured. If the pulse is decreased, make sure to obtain non-invasive vascular studies and consult vascular surgery if abnormal. Finally, monitor these patients carefully for forearm compartment syndrome. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and a lateral of the elbow. As far as additional views, obtain wrist radiographs if an elbow injury is present or there's distal tenderness on exam. You can also obtain an oblique and traction radiographs, which may assist with surgical planning. This is specifically used to evaluate if there is continuity of the trochlear fragment with the medial epicondylar fragment, and this can influence hardware choice. CT is often obtained for surgical planning, and it's especially helpful when shear fractures of the capitellum and trochlear are suspected. 
an MRI is usually not indicated in acute injury. Treatment of distal humerus fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves cast immobilization, and this is indicated for non-displaced Milch type 1 fractures. Operative options include close reduction and percutaneous pinning, ORIF, and total elbow arthroplasty. Close reduction and percutaneous pinning is indicated for displaced Milch type 1 fractures. ORIF is indicated for supracondylar fractures, intercondylar slash bicolumnar fractures, and Milch type 2 fractures. Total elbow arthroplasty is indicated for distal bicolumnar fractures in elderly patients. Now let's talk about some of these treatment techniques in a bit more detail. With respect to cast immobilization, the technique involves immobilizing in supination for lateral condyle fractures and immobilizing in pronation for medial condyle fractures. As far as ORIF, the approach is typically a posterior superficial approach. Exposures include the tricep splitting or Campbell approach, a tricep sparing approach, otherwise known as a paratricipital Alonzo Yamez approach, or an approach using medial and lateral windows. Other exposures include an electron osteotomy, a triflex reflecting or Brian Mori approach, a triceps reflecting anconius pedicle or an O'Driscoll approach, and a lateral muscle interval. The technique for a tricep splitting or Campbell approach involves splitting the triceps tendon in the midline down to the olecranon. A tricep sparing approach, otherwise known as a paratricipital, Alonso Yamez, or medial and lateral windows, this is indicated for extraarticular fractures or fractures with a simple articular split. The technique involves elevating the triceps from the humerus using medial and lateral windows. This can be converted to an olecranon osteotomy if needed. And speaking of olecranon osteotomy, this is typically indicated for complex intraarticular fractures and fractures with a coronal split. Contraindications include when a total arthroplasty is planned slash may be required. The technique for an olecranon osteotomy involves performing a chevron or apex distal osteotomy, and fixation of the osteotomy is performed using a combination of screws, K-wires, tension band, or a plate. Complications of an olecranon osteotomy approach includes an AIN nerve injury, so make sure to check the ability to flex the thumb interphalangeal joint in recovery. In the triceps reflecting or Brian Mori approach, this technique involves reflecting the triceps tendon, forearm fascia, and periosteum off the olecranon from medial to lateral. Then you will repair through transosseous drill holes and immobilize to protect the triceps repair for four to six weeks postoperatively. The triceps reflecting anconius pedicle or O'Driscoll approach involves elevating the anconius subperiosteally from the proximal ulna. Finally, the lateral muscles interval involves elevating the ECRB and part of the ECRL off of the supracondylar ridge. As far as fixation in an ORIF, you can perform provisional reduction with K-wires and keep in mind that if the metaphyseal injury is not comminuted, reducing one column to the metaphysis first may be beneficial. Make sure to perform fixation of articular fragments with countersunk slash headless screws, and consider using positional screws when reducing the trochlea to avoid narrowing it with compression. Finally, make sure to perform fixation of the condyles and the epitrochlear ridge. You can fix the lateral epicondyle using a tension band wire or plate, you can fix the articular segment to the shaft using two plates in orthogonal planes. However, new literature supports parallel plates. If the ulnar nerve contacts the medial hardware during flexion extension, you can perform an ulnar nerve transposition. However, keep in mind that the literature does not support decreased ulnar nerve symptoms with transposition. Postoperatively after ORIF, make sure to splint the elbow in 70 degrees of flexion. Then remove the splint at 48 hours postoperatively and initiate range of motion exercises. 
If an osteotomy is performed, active and active-assisted flexion and extension should be done for six weeks, and no active extension should be done against gravity or resistance, and there will be no restrictions to rotation. However, if an osteotomy is not performed, you can do active motion against gravity without restrictions and also no restrictions to rotation. Make sure to start a gentle strengthening program at six weeks and a full strengthening program at three months. Finally, a total elbow arthroplasty is indicated in comminuted articular fractures in osteoporotic bone and in inflammatory conditions, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. Complications specific to this treatment include activity restrictions, for example, you cannot lift more than five pounds, implant loosening, polyethylene wear, and periprosthetic fracture. Now let's finish this review session talking about some surgical complications, specifically elbow stiffness, heterotopic ossification, nonunion, malunion, AIN injury, ulnar nerve injury, and degenerative joint disease. Elbow stiffness is the most common. Heterotopic ossification is seen in 8% of patients, and keep in mind that routine prophylaxis is not warranted due to increased rates of nonunion in patients treated with indomethacin. Nonunion has a low incidence, but make sure to avoid excessive soft tissue stripping to decrease the risk of nonunion. Malunion is avoided by proper surgical technique, but keep in mind that cubitus valgus can be from lateral column fractures and cubitus varus can come from medial column fractures. And finally, AIN injury can be seen with an olecranon osteotomy. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, What is the most common complication associated with open reduction and internal fixation using a 90-90 plate configuration and olecranon osteotomy for an OTA type C2 distal humerus fracture? And the choices are 1. Non-union of the lateral column, 2. Non-union of the medial column, 3. Non-union of the olecranon osteotomy, 4. Pain related to the plates, and 5. Pain related to the olecranon fixation. So the most common complications associated with open reduction and internal fixation of distal humerus fractures are those associated with repair of an associated olecranon osteotomy. Complications associated with olecranon osteotomy fixation include failure of fixation 5% of the time and the need for secondary removal of painful hardware 70% of the time. So the correct answer to this question is 5, pain related to the olecranon fixation. Non-union of a distal humerus fracture treated with 90-90 plating is uncommon and results from inadequate fixation, excessive soft tissue stripping, or use of inadequate plate fixation, such as one-third tubular plates. Heterotopic ossification is seen in approximately 4% of cases, infection in 4% of cases, and ulnar nerve palsy in 7% of cases. Although a relatively minor complication, the need for removal of painful hardware from the olecranon osteotomy is by far the most common complication seen in these cases. Moving on to the next question, compared with surgically treated patients, patients with extra-articular distal third humeral shaft fractures that are treated non-surgically with functional bracing can be expected to show which of the following findings, and the choices are 1. Similar loss of elbow motion, 2. Greater loss of elbow extension, 3. Higher rate of varus malalignment, 4. Higher rate of functionally limiting malalignment, and 5. Significantly better shoulder motion. So in a retrospective review of patients with extra-articular distal humeral shaft fractures treated surgically versus non-surgically, the authors found that the amount of motion loss was not different between the treatment groups. 
of 21 patients in the non-surgical group, one lost 20 degrees of extension, one lost 30 degrees of extension, and one patient lost 15 degrees of flexion. Of the 19 patients in the surgical group, two patients lost 5 degrees of extension, and one each lost 10, 15, and 20 degrees of extension, respectively. One patient lost 5 degrees of flexion, and one lost 15 degrees of flexion. The average loss of motion in the surgical group was 3 degrees, compared with 6 degrees in the non-surgical group, but this difference was not significant. 100% of the non-surgically treated fractures healed. Both groups of patients regained shoulder motion within 10 degrees of normal. In the non-surgically treated group, 10 healed with less than 10 degrees of malalignment, 6 healed with 11 to 20 degrees of malalignment, and 3 healed with greater than 30 degrees of malalignment, but the authors did not report any functional problems due to these deformities. But the correct answer to this question is 1. Compared with surgically treated patients, patients with extra-articular distal third humeral shaft fractures that are treated non-surgically with functional bracing can be expected to show similar loss of elbow motion. Moving on to the next question, during a lateral approach to repair a distal one-third humeral shaft fracture, the radial nerve is found within the fracture site. The nerve is noted to be grossly in continuity and is carefully extracted. Radial nerve function is absent clinically in the postoperative period. Six weeks after surgery, a nerve velocity conduction study and electromyelogram are obtained. What finding is most consistent with a first-degree injury, aka in neuropraxia? And the choices are 1. Normal sensory conduction in the lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve. 2. Normal amplitude and conduction velocity in the radial sensory nerve of the forearm. 3. Normal insertion activity in the flexor carpi ulnaris muscle. 4. Fibrillations in the extensor digitorum communis muscle. And 5. Strong motor unit action potentials in the triceps muscle. So, a neuropraxic or first-degree nerve injury is a lesion in which there is a focal conduction block within the nerve. There is no loss of continuity of the nerve fiber or axon sheath, and Wallerian degeneration is not observed. The end organs served by the injured nerve, which are muscle end plates or sensory endings, do not develop the atrophic changes typical of a more severe nerve injury. While conduction across the focus of the nerve injury is inhibited, conduction is observed within the nerve both proximal and distal to the lesion. The lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve is not part of the radial nerve, and the flexor carpi ulnaris muscle is not innervated by the radial nerve. The triceps is innervated by the radial nerve proximal to the area of the nerve injury, so action potentials in the triceps are not helpful in assessing distal radial nerve function. Fibrillations in the extensor digitorum communis, which is innervated by the posterior interosseous nerve, which is a branch of the distal portion of the radial nerve, are indicative of more severe nerve injury, which are grade 2 or grade 3. But the correct answer to this question is 2. The finding that is most consistent with a first-degree injury or neuropraxia is a normal amplitude and conduction velocity in the radial sensory nerve of the forearm. Moving on to the next question. A 60-year-old woman with a history of osteoporosis fell from a standing height and sustained a supracondylar distal humerus fracture with an intercondylar extension. Which of the following plate constructs yields the highest stiffness for fixation of the fracture? And the choices are 1. Single posterior Y-plate 2. Single medial plate with bicortical locking screws 3. Dual plating with medial and posterolateral LCDCP 4. Dual plating with medial and posterolateral one-third tubular plates, and 5. Dual plating with medial and lateral LCDCP. 
so optimal treatment of distal humeral fractures relies on re-establishment of a congruent articular surface with a fixation construct that is stable enough to allow for early range of motion. Several biomechanical studies have been performed to evaluate the biomechanical strength of various plating configurations. These studies have shown that dual plate configurations are more stable than single plates regardless of the type of plate used. One-third tubular plates have been shown to be significantly weaker than LCDCP or reconstruction plates, resulting in weaker constructs and clinically higher rates of hardware failure and non-union. Whereas traditional teaching has suggested plating in perpendicular planes, recent biomechanical studies have demonstrated that parallel, medial, and lateral plates confer a greater rigidity to the construct than perpendicular plating schemes. So the correct answer to this question is 5. The plate construct that yields the highest stiffness for fixation of a distal humerus fracture is dual plating with medial and lateral LCDCP. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following patients is most appropriately treated with the total elbow arthroplasty? And the choices are 1. A 42-year-old laborer with an open T-type supracondylar distal humerus fracture. 2. A 90-year-old male with a comminuted translacronon fracture dislocation of the elbow. 3. A 66-year-old female with a coronal shear fracture of the distal humerus. 4. A 50-year-old male with a non-union of a supracondylar humerus fracture. And 5. An 86-year-old female with a comminuted bicolumnar distal humerus fracture. So total elbow arthroplasty has a limited but well-described indication for treatment of distal humerus fractures. Due to the postoperative patient limitations inherent to the current prosthesis, the current recommendation for the use of total elbow arthroplasty for distal humerus fractures is only for elderly patients with osteoporotic bone and comminution not amenable to stable fixation. McKee et al. performed a randomized controlled trial of 42 patients comparing open reduction internal fixation to total elbow arthroplasty. Patients who had the total elbow arthroplasty had better Mayo elbow scores from three months until two years postoperatively, but DASH scores were only better in the total elbow arthroplasty group for the first six months, and they were equal thereafter. Reoperation rates were not statistically different, but note was made of a 25% intraoperative conversion rate from ORIF to total elbow arthroplasty after randomization they conclude that this elderly population appears to adjust well to elbow limitations regardless of treatment. But to quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, a 42-year-old laborer with an open T-type supracondylar distal humerus fracture. This one is going to be treated with a dual plate fixation with placement of a separate strong plate on each column and orientation of the plates either at 90 degrees or 180 degrees to each other. And this is indicated for all adult fractures involving both columns of the distal part of the humerus. Answer 2, a 90-year-old male with a comminuted transalecranon fracture dislocation of the elbow. This fracture pattern requires fixation of the ulna and possible reconstruction slash repair of ligamentous injury. Answer 3, a 66-year-old female with a coronal shear fracture of the distal humerus. So displaced coronal shear fractures of the distal humeral articular surface require operative fixation most typically via a lateral approach. And answer 4, a 50-year-old male with a non-union of supracondylar humerus fracture. So non-union of a supracondylar humerus fracture typically requires revision with plate and screw constructs unless the patient is elderly. Moving on to the next question. Following fixation of a displaced intraarticular fracture of the distal humerus through a posterior approach, what is the expected outcome? And the choices are 1. Development of arthritic changes at one year. 2. Restoration of full elbow range of motion. 
3. Loss of approximately 25% of elbow flexion strength. 4. Posterolateral rotatory instability. And 5. Olecranon nonunion. So following repair of a displaced intraarticular distal humerus fracture, the ability to regain full elbow range of motion is rare. Recent reports of olecranon osteotomy have yielded healing rates of between 95 to 100%. According to McKee and Associates, patients can be expected to have residual loss of elbow flexion strength of 25%. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Following fixation of a displaced intraarticular fracture of the distal humerus through a posterior approach, the expected outcome is loss of approximately 25% of elbow flexion strength. And the last question for this topic, a 71-year-old woman who reports long-term use of oral steroids for asthma is referred for treatment of a distal humerus fracture. Radiographs revealed diffuse osteopenia and a severely comminuted intraarticular fracture. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Long arm cast immobilization, 2. Total elbow arthroplasty, 3. Open reduction and internal fixation, 4. Osteoarticular allograft, and 5. Resection arthroplasty. So several studies have documented the satisfactory outcomes of total elbow arthroplasty when osteosynthesis is not feasible for fixation of a distal humerus fracture, particularly in the physiologically older patient with low functional demands. Total elbow arthroplasty should be considered when a comminuted intraarticular distal humerus fracture occurs in a woman older than age 65 years, particularly with such associated comorbidities as systemic steroid use, osteoporosis, or rheumatoid arthritis. So the correct answer to this question is 2, total elbow arthroplasty. That's all for this review about distal humerus fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.